This is Bruce Sheffer of TriTag Games, reminding everybody who's a Fringeworthy player who has ever thought about playing Fringeworthy that we are going to be having a great presence at Gen Con this year. So please, if you're planning on going to Gen Con in August, then make sure that you sign up for our games, which are going to be opening on May the 20th. So please download the full event schedule and look for Savage Worlds and TriTac Games, Fringeworthy, Bureau 13, all those names, and get in our names. We hope to see you on Savage Saturday nights or any other time. Please stop by our booth that's going to be in the main hall for TriTac Games and meet the legendary Richard Taholka himself. Event information can be found by typing in Gen Con Indie 2012 in your internet browser and going in and registering to be a player there and you'll be able to download the schedule. See you there and keep exploring. Welcome to the TriTag Games Podcast. <laughs> This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Amber. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of chumming up with some really big beefy guys and having them tell you where to go. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that now that is an introduction. <laughs> Wait a minute. So Amber. Do you, do you count as one of those beefy guys? I don't think so. Actually, I was referring to what we're talking about this week, which is the Golden Horde. In Fringeworthy, there are a number of alternate worlds. Of course, it's all alternate worlds. What am I saying? But in the Fringe Path layout, each node has a prime that is a primary location for a culture. Now, this particular one is not on a prime. This is on an alternate but it's interesting in that this is a world in which the Khan, the, the great Genghis Khan, his culture, his society didn't die off. It, or perhaps we're just looking at an alternate version at that time because it's a couple hundred years after the original Khan. But it is now holding sway over all of Europe and Asia. I'm trying to see what other things here are would do with the personality conflicts. Uh, let's see. Justice is a cons justice, which uh, that could actually cause problems too. The cons justice, if he's seeing, hey, you know what? You screw up, you die. That fellow IDET team member mouths off. It may not be a fist or an elbow. It may be a scimitar or a falchion coming out at him, you know, <laughs> looking for blood. Oh, not, not with team members. With their, um, if they're on a world with, with exploring civilization and he sees something he considers wrong, he may actually do a little con justice right then then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Honor the con's honor. Okay, pretty much what he sees as the code of honor of his culture laid down by the con himself, that's how he's going to see honor. And in some societies, that's going to be seen as either a little brutal or a little, in, in you know, a little rigid or a little or a little homicidal uh he might not slaughter his teammates because that would defile his con's honor because his con has probably told him travel with them do what they say learn everything you can and bring back everything you can bring back that would probably go against what his con has told him to do you know you know cutting the head off one of his teammates but but knocking one of their teeth out, or you know, he could cut off one of the teammates' head. <laughs> I mean, there's more. It was or, just a pinky. It was just a pinky. Yeah, yeah, fingers or toes. That um, whole play with knives <laughs> thing, I think, comes into play here. <laughs> Oops. I was just saying, cutting off a finger. Or, yeah, he didn't need all those. 
Maybe breaking a finger or, you know, knocking out a few teeth. That's probably okay. Occasional stabbing, you know, no big deal. What it's going to boil down to is, is that, you know, if you're in a party and you know you've got one of the Golden Horde in your party, you're going to have to be careful not to be offensive to him because he's he's not going to take it. Yeah. And even if he is defending his con, he's gro- he has grown up in a society that didn't have to do that. You know, he may do something that goes against his con's wishes, you know, or, or, or you know, the wishes for the team because he can't help himself. So it's the kind of guy that you're going to have to tread a little lightly around. And if you're going to break bad with him, you best be prepared to back it up. Because he doesn't, he doesn't play that kind of game. Oh, no, no. Let's see. Humanity, mostly barbarians. Well, yeah, if they were not of the Khan's culture, if they were outsiders, every culture is ethnocentric. That means they think their culture's the best. We Americans do it. The Brits do it. They're going to sit there and look at the rest of humanity, the Muslims and the Europeans that the Golden Horde took over, and they are. They're barbarians. You didn't know how to fight. You don't have the culture that we have. To us, you're a barbarian. Uh, let's see. Politics? Don't understand. Uh, no. That no. one? No, no. There's, there's court politics. There's a whole... There, they got politics. Their the politics are just a little bit more brutal and upfront. <laughs> yeah, as I said, we brought back Machiavellian. Yeah. <laughs> our politics, how we see it, and all our political maneuvering, and... Uh, Western court etiquette, yeah, they're going to look at that and go, you bunch of dandified fops. That's not how you deal with signing a treaty, you know. Red tape, decoration for yurts, I think it says. Yeah. They like red. Yeah, a yurt is a a house. Okay, yeah, it's for them that they hear red tape and they're like, yeah, uh, uh, combat, way of life. Hey, as I said, these guys were expert hunters and trackers and equestrians. You get a Mongolian cavalry, pee on the fire and call on the dogs. It's done. You have very little <laughs> chance of winning against a Mongolian cavalry. And the fringes, roads to the gods. Well, yeah, they see the fringes as the newest empire. Glory to their con. We're going to get all sorts of cool stuff off these fringe paths. And, hey, show, point, point me the way to the warp. Um, available skills, riding, hunting, looting, burning, survival. Yeah, they, they pretty much, yeah, that's yeah. what the Mongolians did back in the day. I mean, they <laughs> begin a horse and a sword, and they're good to go. I mean, that's all they really need. They traveled light, you know. Yeah, it, it doesn't really list their weapon skills, of which there would be many. As you can see, the guy in the picture is holding what looks like a submachine gun over his shoulder. It's, it's, it looks it could be an Uzi. Yeah, weapon skills would be pretty much right up there in the top. Well, yeah, um, I would say, let's see, probably a sword. I would say probably a longbow of some type. Historically, but as soon as they find out how good guns are, I'm sure they're using those. Oh, yeah. Leave that bow behind, man. Pull out that, as John said, pull out that Uzi. No, there are instances where their archaic weapon skills will come into play, and their hand-to-hand skills will come into play. If you go walking into a place with guns, nine times out of ten, the people whose place you're walking into, they're going to look at you and say, okay, these idiots are looking to start some trouble. Let's talk to them. The Mongolian who knows how to fight hand to hand, and the uh, I want to say uh, Chuchuan was the name of martial art that they used. If I remember from Ninjas and Super Spies, you get a Mongolian with that where he's barehanded and walks in, and all of a sudden takes out five guards without firing a shot. Well, you know that's going to come in handy. So they'll see the utility using a gun, but when it comes down to it. If they can use the stuff they were born and raised with, they will in a heartbeat. They'll pick up a sword, they'll pick up a rock or a stick and just use that in the way that they've been trained. Yeah, the the guns, oh no, no. I see when the time comes to be loud and destructive, 
Hemi Mayuzi, you know. <laughs> the one with the fur strap, you know. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, good traits, good writers, quiet, loyal teammates, ardent survivalists, great hunters, patient. Well, yeah, if they're stalking their prey, they're going to learn patience. There are going to be times they're going to be having to sit for... Hours at a time. Well, were, were they hunters, or were they were they literally nomads, and they actually had their herds with them as they as they went along? I mean, uh, nomads still had to hunt. Let's face it; if they were hunters, guys, I mean, there one of the laws in the Yasa was about when was it proper to hunt because they, every winter they had this huge hunt that all the men took part in, and so they had to let the forest repopulate enough so they could have a really good hunt. So they were good hunters. Okay. It was part of their culture. They loved hunting. And as I said, patient, even modern hunt people who hunt, you know, bow and firearm hunting. As I said, Amber and I are up here in Michigan. We have a mass exodus every fall for firearm and bow hunting. And you got to mm-hmm. sit for hours, hours before the possibility of a deer coming up where you can, you know, get it. So, yeah, patience is something they've had to learn. Oh, yeah. Bad traits. Oh, here we go. Gee, the list for bad traits is bigger than the one. Superstitious. Well, we were talking earlier about their um, religion. Very shamanistic into animism. So, yeah, superstitions are going to flow. Oh, you can't cross the water at this time of day or otherwise this will, you know, things like that. Yeah, well, that's their beliefs. I mean, they're saying... I believe there's a spirit in this water, and we need to appease the spirit so it'll let us cross the water without dragging us under. Oh, you're just superstitious. He's doing it because he believes it's true. I think the difference between a belief and a superstition is with a superstition, you know what you're thinking is illogical, but you still believe it anyway. If these people just completely, with without a single fraction of a doubt, believe that they need to appease the the river spirit. It's not a superstition at that point. It is just how they were raised. It is what they believe. Right, but when you look at it from the outside, from a modern 21st century perspective, you see this person spending an awful lot of time engaging in these behaviors of appeasement to the spirits or honoring the spirits and such when it's slowing you down. And you're like, well, you're just superstitious. And he's like, no, I'm not. You will be sorry for for doing that, and they heard you. I could see these guys when they're if they're back visiting, uh, you know, on Earth Prime, they're probably given you know various gifts and so forth, like iPhones, and they have long personal conversations with Siri about things. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to our resident expert to come up with that one. Thank you, John. <laughs> and Siri is the artificial intelligence persona on the iPhone. Uh, <laughs> and on that note you bring up a good point what kind of tribute are these guys bringing back to their con and where does IDET step in like for example you know they're, they're going to want to bring the best stuff back for their con so granted if they're part of a party where the leader is an IDET guy who's a human from Earth Prime they're going to listen to what he says because he's a leader and they've sworn their allegiance to him and all that but where do you see conflicts? Like, in other words, let's say they find out a really awesome crystal, and this guy's been traveling with the party long enough to know the value of crystals and know what they do, and they know what that would bring to their con. If you're playing the character, if you're you're playing this character who's of the Golden Horde, and the party discovers this really high level crystal, and you're given the opportunity, you know, to break for your home or even shove the leader off the platform and take this this magnificent crystal back to your con, is that something you're going to have to deal with? I definitely think that would happen. If no other reason, this is, I'm going to take this back to my world, give it to the con. If the con thinks you should have it, he'll give it back to you. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for him not to think he should bump the decision further up the chain. He's not going to think about you making that decision. He's going to make that decision. Because let's face it, if the Khan had a really high-level crystal, you know, that gives the Golden Horde a lot of power. You know, that might even turn the tables a little bit. That might require Idet to come to the Khan to ask for favors. You know, Idet has to come to the, come to the Khan to, to, you know, they, they found some door that they can't open. And they have to come to the Great Khan to ask him his permission to go into that world. Or worse yet, 
the Khan sends uh, sends a, a small strike team to Earth Prime and locks all the portals. <laughs> this goes back into this late campaign idea that Blix brought up earlier. The the Golden Horde, the the Romana Universa, the Victorians, they all start going, okay, we don't like the you know, the modern people are starting to treat us all like we're savages. And so, oh, the con has a rainbow key. And then go from there because all these other versions of humanity have gotten in really good with IDET. And, you know, that could be a very dangerous thing, giving the con a high-powered key. Not well, just because of, you know, oh, we have to go to him to, you know, open this world. Let's say you're, um, you're one of the Golden Horde and you're traveling with your party and your character is the one to find the rainbow key, and no one else knows that you found it. And you know this thing is high level. I mean, you know, you, you've been traveling with IDET. You, you have any training that they have. Uh, I would honestly see one of the Golden Horde jamming that thing in his pocket and not saying a thing to anyone. Oh, no. Jamming his pocket. I would imagine he would go, okay, and he puts it in place secure. Swallows Swallow it. it. Yeah, swallows it. I mean, seriously. And they had to cut it out. They cut it out. I mean, this is for his con. This is such, such a prize. You know, he may be even willing to sacrifice himself just to make sure that the, the con gets that key. Because mm-hmm. that's a big, that's a great big deal. Yeah. You know, and the con could wield power with a key like that. So if you're playing a character as one of the Golden Horde, you don't have to be one of the mindless drones following the con. You can you can carve your own path. Let's say you wanted to get away from the whole con thing. I mean, you don't you don't have to follow this stereotype. We're just talking about what the mm-hmm. general people would be like. And, and your character may even struggle with it. You may even say, "Well, my character wants to do the right thing, you know, the right thing by the con by taking this crystal to him, but at the same time he's been traveling with all these guys and he believes in the cause of Idet and you know, he's grown through the couple years that he's been traveling with these guys, he sees the bigger picture. You can run your character any way you want to. We're just saying that the the generic, the very generic version, that's the kind of things he would think about. Well, I think this brings up a really good question, which I don't think we've ever dealt with before, not really in, a, in an overarching way. And that is, IDET, how much does it restrict or does it restrict at all anything to these partner worlds? In the case of the Tays, they're saying, hey, we don't want that technology. We don't want that. You don't bring it in here. And I that's like, okay, fine. You know, you could have all this stuff, but you but you don't want it, fine, you don't want it. Okay. Are we in the opposite situation here? Are we saying, look, you know, it's the con and he's brutal and and uh, all this stuff, and so we're not going to give him good stuff? So this guy has to go and and steal stuff to bring it back to the con. You know, it's, it's also kind of the way that we treat the Chileans. It's like you know, there's things we can't give you. And is that actually true? Does IDET restrict technology or anything else to any of their partners? Well, actually, would be IDET. It'd be the United Nations at this point. It'd be the Security Council deciding that these people. They're all, they're nice people, but we're not going to give them anything better than 1920s technology. But do you think that would really happen? Is there anything that would keep them from getting it from from any of the other partners that are out there, the Erds or the the Norlanders or anybody? There's also potential. GM's crazy enough to run an all Golden Horde party. Boom! There's a totally different game right there. Wow. Yeah, that's a cool concept, dude. Seriously, imagine playing a nine-headed team where it's nothing but Victorians, Erders, and 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 Golden Horde. Oh my God, that's a totally different party. To Zeal in there. Oh my God, that sounds like a lot of fun. Actually, I want to do it now. So someone needs to run a con game and try it out. That is a totally different party, and and I think it would be cool. I think it would be a very cool party. I need to expand the entry now for the Golden Horde. <laughs> it seems to me that for the you know for the Savage World Edition, these guys are kind of shoe ins for that whole kind of genre. You guys are absolutely, dealing. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the Golden Horde plays right into the whole pulp mindset. Mm-hmm. 
and I've been wanting to bring this up all night. The movie The Shadow with Alec Baldwin and John Lone playing Shiwan Khan, <laughs> the last descendant of Genghis Khan. I loved him. He was great. Oh, yo, yo, John Lone was fantastic. And just the way he was. A Mongol in quote-unquote modern-day America, yeah, he was there in the nice suit and everything, but you still saw him in the Mongolian restaurant, scooping the food up with his hands, it's all in his beard, and then he all of a sudden wipes his hands, and he's very urbane, and talking (laughs) to Lamont Cranston like it's about the business on Wall Street. You're a barbarian, of course. We all are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I've been wanting to bring that up all night, that particular movie, just because yeah. it doesn't matter. And I think that the actual con was that way. I mean, he, he wasn't afraid to get down and dirty at the same time. He also benefited from cult, you know, culture as well. It does bring a good point, though. As, as time goes on and the con starts getting all this, all this, all these great toys... Does he start getting soft? Because he's got these wonder weapons. We don't need to worry about horsemanship. We got guys with guns that shoot the lead hose. Later generations, especially after the curtain con dies, do we see his kids not being so rough and tough? Well, I don't I don't know, John, because here, here's the deal. The con has already gotten control of his world, right? So what is his new empire? The French path. So can he get soft? No, it, no, because he's got a much bigger fish to fry now. He, he can still get soft in his home world because he only has the old world. There's still the new world cooking and build, making something new that can challenge him. Flix is right. He's got to keep his skills and his warriors trained. Let's split the difference. This would be a good campaign point. This would be a good, like, if you're going to use these guys extensively, this would be a really good way to run this. The current con does get soft like John's saying. But let's say his second or third son sees the French path for what it is. He understands it. Not his first son because that's too predictable. It's too easy. Let's take his second or third son, the guy that that really doesn't have any power, the guy that has to make his own way. Because, you know, in family inheritances, it's always about the first son. Let's take the third son. And he gets the French path. You know, he's he's actually one of the guys who's really been traveling with IDAD teams a lot. And he understands this whole new way of thinking for the Empire. Because the Empire isn't – there's no longer just that world. The Empire is now looking at the French path as its expansion. So he gets it. And he's the one – that really makes the decisions for the way the empire is going to go. So that home world, the home world of the Golden Horde, is, is, is run the old school way and it stays its old way, but he's really bringing about the new empire. And, and that, that's like a middle or later campaign. And you could have a lot of fun with that. You could do a lot of direction with that. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to play the character who was, uh, that'd be a great, oh my God, that would be a really great character. Imagine you are the third son of the Khan. So you don't really have a whole lot of power because in the way these things ran in ancient times was the, the further down you got the line of being sons, you know, second, third, fourth son or whatever, the less power you had to control. So was, the Khan doesn't really care what you're doing if you're the third or fourth son. And that's where the beauty of your power comes from because now you are traveling the French Pass and you are the one who is making all of the headways into the the, the new technology and the new understanding of how things work. You're the one that's out there looking for the women, so you can take a small colony to one of these empty worlds and set up shop. Sure, sure, <laughs> and 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 you're the one who is going to come back with the army of guys wielding laser guns and take over from your first son, your brother, and take over the more you know the the Mongol Empire. And, and bring it into the new world and modernize it and change everything. I'm just saying, that's a really good character for a really good, strong campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he definitely would have long-term goals, sure. Yeah. It would make sense. So let's move on to maybe one last topic on this, and that is how are the women – how are they treated? And are we going to have any Mongol horde? I'm sorry, a uh, golden horde women 
coming out of this world, uh, joining IDET. What do you think, uh, Amber? I think she might be still AFK. Oh, okay. Well, hey, hold on. Uh, then I can comment on this. Go right. Just, just, just reading about uh, Timogen, uh, Genghis Khan, who, who he'd become. He actually saw women a lot differently than than generations before him, because uh, his father was killed early on, and he was raised by his mother, him and his brothers. He had a great respect for women, so he really changed the Mongols' way of looking at women. He actually had a bigger place for them than they had ever had before. Again, remember we talked about how how Genghis had it. He he did everything from his own personal experiences. Yeah. Um, his mother literally raised him and his two brothers by herself, you know, hunting animals and gathering food and stuff. And they had a very difficult early life, but he greatly respected women because of that. So I can see women in the Mongol lifestyle having a lot more say in stuff. And she did in his life and, and in the empire in the early days. The book I was reading about this, they didn't really go into what that lasting impact was on women down the line. But, you know, it's a role-playing game, and we're going to have female role players, and we want to be friendly to them because we love having them in our games. Uh, personally, I would say that I would like it if the, the Golden Horde actually viewed women as productive egalitarian members of society. Yeah. They did. Uh, one of the rules was that the men would give property to the women, and it was the woman's job to run it and take care of it and to and to, to, and to bring uh, return from it, while the men went out and warred and, and hunted and did stuff like that. That actually sounds like a matriarchal society, then. No, not, no, 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 not really. They were respected, but they weren't in charge. But they also had power. They had the ability to make contracts. Oh, they, they did? No, no, they did. And that's important because in a lot of cultures, Western cultures, women did not have that power. Yeah. Actually, to take a twist in your, on, your, on your little scenario, it's not the third son. It's the third daughter. Okay. That, I like that. <laughs> who, knows, who, who knows she has no place as con? Even though egalitarian, it's always the con male, not con female. Yeah. No, I like that, John. And now she and she's been exposed to Western ideas. She's been to places and find out. Yeah, especially she's been she's been to Earth and find out that women can have just as much power as anyone else does. Let's just say she's a very young woman, twelve, thirteen, whatever. She's discovered to be friendsworthy. She wants to travel to Idet. Nobody really gives a because she's, you know, the third daughter of the Khan, so no one really cares where she goes or what she does. Well, other than there's a certain amount of pride that, you know, he started a, a fringeworthy person other than that. Well, well yeah, I mean, just saying, other than that. But personally, they're like, yeah, she can do whatever she wants. So she goes back to High Dead. She goes back to Earth Prime, and she actually goes to college and gets a, you know, gets a degree as a doctor or something like that, and then travels with the team, and then realizes she understands her culture and she's got all this modern, you know, earth prime education and she manages to, to, to wield that like a weapon so that when she goes back, she changes her society. That would make an awesome character. That would make an awesome campaign. Mm -hmm. You could take a, a woman and you could say, you're going to have to wed this other character, this other golden hoarder. Because therefore, that, you know, you can't just be traveling around, you know, without a husband. Hmm. And then, and so you have this marriage of convenience. So, Amber, would you like to marry one of your other player characters in your team? Would I like to marry them? For political gain. Would you play a player character who's married to another character, player character in, your in, in the game? Wait a minute, wait a minute. But especially for political gain. Yeah. Oh. Uh. Sarah would. Why not? Would you want to go down those like political levels? In other words, the two characters are married, but it's really for your power purposes. You're a very plotting character, and you're you're using that so that eventually, at some point, you can take control. If a character is that type of character, it it's all depending on on how you look at it. If they don't believe it's wrong, then as far as they're concerned, it isn't wrong. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
initially that's what happens you know she's she's the third daughter she used to be married off to somebody so she so they can make some political ties you know so yeah she's married off to the greatest fighter that they, who's fringe worthy that happens mm-hmm. yeah but my point was is that you you create the situation where you have two people mm-hmm. who are united because they're both trying to serve the con yeah and they would be expected to produce children and all the rest of that stuff because that's part of their culture. But outside of that, they had complete freedom with, you know, to do whatever they wanted to do. Once they go through the portal, they're on the fringe paths. They may end up pairing off with other people or just being nasty to each other, but they know as soon as they go back through that portal, oh, yes, my sweet, and we have explored the fringe paths together, <laughs> they get back off the fr- onto the fringe path. Get away from me, you ugly dog. <laughs> the conversations between a man and a woman in private, I'm sure it could blister walls. <laughs> if you came from that culture and you hadn't quite internalized the idea that a woman can own property of her own, it, you know, it doesn't belong to the family unit, then if the, the uh, golden hoarder that you're married to gets killed by a meller on one world, you might turn around and look at the other members of the team and go, okay, Who's my, who's next? You know, who's my new husband now? All these Earth Primers are just looking, going, "Oh hell no!" <laughs> <laughs> I'm already married. <laughs> That's the job. Per- <laughs> this is what happens to your husbands. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, if you were a golden hoarder, a guy, you might be talking to the other members of your team. You know, especially a female member of the team, saying, "You and I should get married because." You know, you come from a, a, a powerful family, and I will give you treasure, and then you can invest it for me and make us both rich. This is the third daughter who's gone to Earth Prime and gotten a proper... I, I'm not limiting it to a third daughter here. <laughs> it can be you, a, a, any female, yeah. I'm just saying, if you come from this culture and you're female, okay, there's going to be some expectations of how you're supposed to behave... They respected women as far as their capability was concerned. The women were not treated shabbily. Uh, they weren't treated as chattel. They were treated as, as actual partners in the family unit. So therefore, I think that it would be very strong that a woman who was from this culture would be looking for somebody, if they wasn't already in a marriage alliance, would be looking for a marriage alliance either within the team or on a world in which she travels to regularly. Mostly ignorant peasants and warriors. We've been talking about the warriors. What about the ignorant peasants? You know, farmers. You know, guys who tended the goats. Oh, yeah. no. They're, they're going on the French paths. Why? Their con told them to. Right. Yeah, yeah but they're not going to have the same, the same mindset, the same loyalties as one of Khan's warriors. They're not doing it out of so much pride they're doing it because if i screw up i'm a dead man and my family's dead <laughs> unless they're mongol themselves wait a minute hold on hold on, hold on. <laughs> everything i've read you know the the con isn't that draconian you know the con would order them to do this and as long as they did it i don't see him you know i mean they're prescribed as being you know this this horrible like um, you know, a draconian society. But for the most part, you know, from everything I've read, that they weren't really like that. I mean, that was mainly just to keep order. Everything he did was was really based around keeping order and such. So, I mean, like if if I mean, I could see that if you were fringeworthy, and he said, "Look, you have to go through, and you have to do right by the, you know, right by our empire." As long as you agreed to it, you know, it'd be it'd be all gravy. I think you'd only run into problems if you said, no, no, I don't want to do that. I think what it would be was he wouldn't give you a choice, but so long as you did it, you wouldn't be hold to like, you know, this this horrible scrutiny that, oh my God, if I screw up one thing, he's going to slaughter my whole family. No, I think you'd see it as an amazing opportunity, something you never would have dreamed would have come your way. Right. I, I don't think he would do that. I, th- I think it, you would feel proud to do it. And afraid. You'd be afraid, of course, because it's something you haven't done before. But you wouldn't be afraid of your con. You'd be afraid of the fringe path. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. But as so long as you did what he wanted you to do, I don't think uh, I don't think it would be any problems. I, I really don't. 
And I think he'd be proud to do it for him. The warriors will have one mindset. The the peasants will have a different mindset. And, and I'm wondering how much... Would there be more fish oil water than the warriors at first? Well, yeah, the warriors have had to learn to adapt to various things because their lives are often on the line in their line of duty. The but peasants, they, they herd their goats. They gather their food. They work hard. Yeah. But they do the same thing pretty much every day. Warriors got to think on their feet in order to survive. So, yeah, I think for a peasant, it's going to be a lot harder for them to get used to the relatively wild and chaotic life that's out on the fringe paths. You, you know what, Trav, though? In one way, I say yes, I agree with you. But in another way, I say no, because at the same time, you're not bound by the trappings of being a warrior. So that you've got we – were dis, you know, we were discussing this earlier. You know, you're traveling with this IDET team, and they're not – you know, draconian. They're not. Um, you know, they're not as um, as as rough and tough and rumble as they're as weak. a. They're they're weaker, right? And you would fit in better with them because they're. I mean, most of our dead people. I mean, you think about it. Even their trained soldiers, or whatever. They're they're more like the common people because they have you know family values and all that stuff that comes before being a soldier. I agree, Flex. I think that. They would integrate much easier with the, the rest of the team than the Warriors would. So the Warriors would deal with the stresses of the combats and the, and the craziness of the French path that they have to deal with. They, w- they would adapt to that better. But when it comes to the interpersonal relationships with the party of, of IDET members of, of regular, you know, normal Earth Prime worlds, that's where they would excel over the Warriors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a Connate this large... You would imagine that they actually would have more. They actually would be cities in which, if you have cities, you have the the base the non warrior class. In fact, like for most for most armies, they probably outnumber them uh, five to one or better. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's see. Fourteen twenty. Oh, cities were being formed by then, and you know that when as oh, the yeah. Khan went out further and further and saw how other <laughs> cultures built their cities. And how they laid out their cities, because especially the Muslims, they had fantastic cities all throughout northern Africa and all that. You know that the Khan's armies would take those things back. And so by 1420 on the Golden Horde's world, Chung Kuo, that capital city that that warp is near is going to be a fantastic environment. It's not going to be a tent city anymore. They're going to have... They're going to have moved past the hunter-gatherer, even though it says hunter-gatherer in the description. They'll probably have very intricate permanent settlements. And you might see dashes of Muslim architecture and European architecture in these cities where they picked and chose you know, what they liked out of their conquered nations, so. I would think they would leave, a, a not necessarily a garrison, they would actually leave people to be in charge of these cities, these areas, to bring in the tribute, to bring in the food, so that when the Khan's army came roaring by, they had stuff for them. Yeah. You know, they would be constantly sending tribute to the Khan, who would then distribute it as he pleased. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that you would, you know, that you'd have a much more traditional medieval society yeah. yeah so you have the farmers you'd actually have uh you know the army itself is one thing but the, the cities the, the, you gotta have farmers you gotta have merchants you got people with all kinds of skills going you would on have a there. middle a middle class of artisans and whatnot yeah you wouldn't just have the peasants and the nobility you would have that middle class of artisans and businessmen and bankers there within the Mongolian society. Yeah, yeah. As you say, businessmen, traders. I mean, Marco Polo was in the Khan's court for many, many years, and he and the Khan loved him because he was bringing him money. Oh yeah. He ran stuff for the Khan. He was given authority by the Khan to to do a lot of things. And the, only at the very end of his life was he allowed to leave, you know, to go home, because he was so good at making the Khan money. Yeah. So sure. So that actually might, might indicate if there's if if there are cities, then not all of them are illiterate peasants. 
Yeah, the literacy rate would be higher due to condensed centers of information and easier dissemination. The people who were fringe-worthy, if you go by your normal distribution, you're going to have a lot more peasants yeah. and a lot more warriors than you're going to have scholars and artisans. So therefore, merchants, yeah, fringe-worthy are going to be from the peasant and the warrior classes. With the occasional merchant and a scholar who gets picked up sometimes, you know, other than that. Right, but that's just the way it is because that's what the population is going to break down as. Mm-hmm. It's, it, they're, they're not saying the entire culture is illiterate. They're just simply saying that's what you're going to get whenever you go and randomly pick people out of a population yeah. that's mostly agricultural and uh, herding. Yeah, and, re- and, re- and really only the merchants and scholars would be ones that would consider literate. Uh, and the priests, too, of the course. The rest of them are, you know, do you have a need? Can you count? Can you at least count to 12? You're good then, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things. You, know, you don't, really don't really need to read and write. You might be able to do basic, you know, math. Yeah. How many horses can you hold on to and control? Okay. You need to know that you haven't lost a horse. Mm-hmm. If you can count that high, you're good. Yep. I can see bringing in new technology in, especially because the orders are in like 1930s, so a lot of like diesel generators are being trucked on over and set up in places. And now they have electric lights and, you know, maybe not computers, but they got other things, radios. And that's one reason why the uh, IDETS wants to bring in education to this place, because they want to build up that middle class. Yeah. Because until they do so, then... The stability of the society is going to be based upon the rules of succession, which, as you, as you saw, are pretty much the con gets to decide who inherits. One of the reasons why the Roman Empire collapsed was because there was always this infighting going on between uh, various people who wanted to be emperors. I so think- I, I did wants to bring in more education to yeah. basically bring the peasants up to the level of the middle class. Yep. You know, if you're from Idet. And you've got these golden horde. Let's say you're an IDET high command, and you're and you got you're having this discussion about, you know, the golden horde. You know, you have to make a policy policy decision. What are you doing with these guys? I mean, where where do you where, where does your discussion go when the question comes up? What about these golden horde cats? What what do we do about? How do we direct them? How do we lead them? How do we use them? Um, what are your thoughts on this? I think they'd start with the basic agricultural sanitation package. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? what? You know, where you go in and you teach people how to live healthy lives so they're not riddled with diseases and parasites. And then you also teach them how to grow crops better and uh, feed people better, better nutrition, get bigger, stronger. Hey, Bruce, that's very utopian of you. Oh, I don't think it's utopian at all, but go on. No, 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 no. No, I'm saying that's very generous and very nice. That's a, that's a very um, giving way to think. But, you know, the military strategist comes in and says, we got these Golden Horde guys and you know what they're like. We, we've studied them through history and, you know, we have them on the French Pass now. And what do we do with these guys? I mean, how do we well, keep them – under wraps, per se. The Golden Horde people that are initially contacted by the first team, that's it until they get their own crystal keys or or they start marching people to the warp. Or at least say, can you see the warp? Yes, you're good, go. Um, they won't be able to find more Fringeworthy until they get their own keys and then go out in the population. So one policy may be to restrict key access. If they don't have keys, they can't find them unless they march them on past the, the warp. So do you think the IDET's position on how we treat the Golden Horde is is restrictive? In other words, don't let them have anything that they can't take with their two hands and, and usurp from us because they're dangerous. I mean, do you, do you think that's how IDET would see them? It doesn't really matter what they do on their own world. They can't get out. Not in large enough numbers to matter. So you don't think IDET's going to extend any specific restrictive policy towards the Golden Horde? I think they're going to have a lot of discussion about it, but ultimately if they try, I think that the Golden Horders are going to find ready markets out on the fringe paths from other worlds. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing stopping these guys from just picking up and saying, okay, well, we're just going to go fringe pirate on you and start raiding. 
you know. You know, it's funny you should mention French Pirate because I was thinking about that during this. Do you think the Golden Horde are really good candidates be- to become French Pirates? Yeah. Because I, I do. <laughs> I see them as like being exceptionally good candidates for going down that road. Well, you could make a very good case that the French Pirates that are out there are Golden Hoarders from other worlds. Okay. Or the, the occasional Golden Hoarder who found the warp and didn't come back because he found something better. So in other words, when, when we're doing the French Pirate section, which yeah, we yeah. have to work on very soon, John, Yeah. Um, uh, I see them as having a pretty good contingent of Golden Hoarders. You can see them having a pretty good contingent of any. Pick a, pick a warlike race. They have a good contingent of those. Right. To be Arab nomads in there. Gurkhas from Nepal, yes. You have Gurkhas from Nepal in that group. You'll have, you know, pick pick your favorite, you know, you'll have Vikings in there for crying out loud. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Now you're talking my language. What's that vehicle on the path? It's got a dragon head prow? <laughs> Shh. Makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, sure works. All right, so cool. Especially interesting for the poor... I uh, Eunice guy who's sent over as liaison, and he's going to be living there on the on, on the con world for the next two or three years, or or as he finds out from the con until he, until the con decides to send him home. So hey, real, real quick, Amber, do you have any um, do you have any other questions? I mean, because we're we're all sort of the fringe worthy luminaries. It, it helps to have a, a fresh perspective on this. Do you have any questions beyond what we've already talked about? Um, not really. Um, there were times where I was kind of hesitant on trying to butt in and ask a question, but within a couple of minutes, the questions are being answered, so. <laughs> well, butt in anyways. Let, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's say you want to play a golden hoarder, right, from from everything we've said now. Why don't you give us uh, your thoughts on how you would play that character, just so that we can take it from not only a, a newer perspective, but from a female perspective as well. And one that you think would be really fun to play. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I kind of feel like these characters are very conniving, I guess, in that, like I said way earlier, the ends justify the means. I could see her point on that about warriors would be very Machiavellian because they've had to learn to do all this type of stuff to survive. Right. And I kind of see them being very, very ruthless. For me personally, I would have difficulty playing such a a strong character because there is a very specific mindset that the character demands that may or may not be taxing on the player. Like how well you get into character, how well you're able to differentiate what the player character and what the character is doing but for something like this i see them being very aggressive very ends justifies the means very i do i want yeah very gung-ho so i i i kind of feel like this character is very assertive is that the right word i think you're right very assertive i would expect to be very assertive yeah uh, I agree, Amber. I think that you know, strong leads to be a strong character. Even though that it says that some a lot of times they're quiet, that's because if they don't have anything to say, you know, they don't say it. They're focused on what their next move is, on what they, you know. I think they're very purposeful. They really you know? do strike me as the. They're not going to say something unless it's important, and if they open their mouths, you better listen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear God! It's Silent Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it'd be a contest between them and, and the, the, the zeal for playing the stoic character. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. John's got it. Yep. Actually, I can see them and and the, the zeal get along like you know sharks after chum. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, they would. They'd be two peas in a pod because they'd have similar mindsets. They'd have sit, they were raised in similar environments. Granted, probably the well, let's see, the desert steppes for the Mongolians, and I'm trying to recall the environment we. It was a savannah. The Russian steppes are, are, are basically temperate savannas, or mountainous grasslands, yeah, like the high plains. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually, yeah, even by their their climate and their terrain, the Tazeel and the Golden Horde, they'd actually, it'd be a competition. They, it'd be a friendly rivalry to see who's the better tracker, who's the better naturalist, who's the better fighter. Actually, you know what? Who could win the staring battle? I could see the Tazeel and the Golden Horde member at the end of the day, at, at, at the evening around the campfire, those two guys being the buddies. Oh, yeah. Drinking and just... Right. Oh, yeah. They, they would be competing with each other, but it, but between what, the how, two of them... What, how does it go? Your, your friends will be the ones to get you out of jail. Your best friends will be sitting right there next to you. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Going. you're right. Damn, Amber. that was I, fun. Yeah, I, I can see. I can see that it would definitely help him move bodies. Yeah, I can see the the, the rest of the party having to rescue the Tazeel and the Golden Horde guy from the prison. <laughs> <laughs> I could see the Golden Horde guy saying the Tazeel got captured. We're going to go get him, right? Right, absolutely. And everyone's like, well, maybe we should negotiate. No, no, no. We're going to go get him, right? And as the Golden Hordesman cracks his knuckles, glaring at the rest of the Ida team. No, we're going to get him now. Right. The, the Golden Horde guy's going, we're going to get him, or I'm going to gut you yeah. right here, you coward. The Zeal guy's in the jail saying, I wonder when they're going to come get me. Yeah, it looks, looks at the Golden Hordesman. What took you so long? <laughs> oh, he, he, I had to motivate, I had to motivate oh, these pansies. Yeah. <laughs> but it's even worse than that because the, the zeal is not in jail. He's in the zoo. <laughs> no, seriously. No, Trev, that's a good, that's a good one. You know, I guess like I had, I had to motivate these other losers to come along and do what was right. right. I was telling them you'll be here soon. <laughs> The Golden Hoarder and the Dezeal are holding the moral high ground. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't believe me when I told them you were here to come rescue me. <laughs> yeah, I can see the, I can oh. see them turning to the rest of the party. You see? You didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> and those wounds will heal. You'll heal. You've got special dock box back in, in Hatsumi <laughs> Bay's make you all better. <laughs> Yeah, I can see the two of them sitting around a fire laughing about the other how the other members cry about everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they what they talk about blisters in their feet from walking all day and you know. <laughs> back in my day, we had to walk up sail in the snow both ways, and that was just to catch the bus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're crying about how they don't have how they ran out of chocolate or, right, or right. this coffee right. doesn't taste right. And so they're like yeah. rolling their eyes, going, you know, you've never gone on a campaign where you had to march across half a continent. And or the deal will say you weren't born an egg and had to make it back to your to your home to be to be raised. Oh yeah, I can just see them now. It'd be like the, it's the scene from Jaws, you know. Right. Oh yeah, scar scene. This scar here I got from I got from a large beast. Oh, oh well, this over here I got shot. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know the skit, the Monty Python guys did it, the four Yorkshiremen, where they're all comparing who had the worst childhood. Oh, we were killed, and then we had to go out in the morning and eat gravel from the road. Oh, if we had gravel. <laughs> yeah, and they one guy, luxury. <laughs> luxury. I could see those two trading war stories back and forth, and just all the 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 more civilized people just looking going, really? <laughs> Comparing scars. Was it that bad? How were you alive today with that bad of a childhood? Yeah, and then yeah. finally coming to the realization that they're telling the honest truth to each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that gets a little chilling after a while, you know. what? You know, if we were to tell kids today how it was, they wouldn't believe us? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's suffice it to say that, that if you're going to play a golden horde, you're probably not playing the hacker of the party you're most likely not playing the diplomat of the party. There's a very good chance that you're not playing the medic of the party. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you're playing the warrior of the party. You could be playing the survivalist. The D&D class that would fit best for this would be the ranger. Ranger, yeah, absolutely. Unless you're the peasant, in which case you could be the, the medic. You could be the survivalist. 
Well, maybe, maybe the medic Bruce, but I'm just seeing not like um, you could be a face I mean, man because you're negotiating with the other members of your village. Oh, I could see that. I could see the face man in, in a, and that would be a very interesting character. There's no reason why it's, why a, a golden horde couldn't lead a party if you made him correctly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of the alien core. Gerald Borodin sounds like a Golden Horde if you really think about him. Right, right. And like all the stuff we've been saying, you know, the Golden Horde, they're not stupid people. They're very strategic. So there's no reason why you couldn't be a leader. Especially if we were talking about, you know, that, that third son or third daughter concept. There's no reason why you couldn't be the leader of the team. Because Ided is not going to discriminate against you in that way. That's kind of the way Ided is. If you're part of the Alien Corps, there's no reason why a Golden Horde couldn't be the team leader. No, as long as uh, he's up for it. Right. Or, or she. I meant generically. Right, yeah. right. Uh, I think there's a lot of directions you could go. I just don't see them as being like, you know, the civil engineer of the group. It's a fringe-worthy race you can have fun playing. You know generally what they're going to be. You can deviate from that norm. But generally, you know what type of character after this, what we've said, what you're generally getting yourself into. Have fun with it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, I wouldn't. I would not play a, uh, a golden horde person trying to break every norm that we just talked about. I mean, because you know all the stuff that we talked about is just too much fun to play with. You know, I, sure, yeah, absolutely. You could play. A, you could make a reason for a golden horde uh, member to have come to IDET early on as a as a youngster and learned engineering and, and be the team's engineer. There's no reason why that couldn't exist. But I wouldn't play with it because I just don't see the fun in that. You know, with all the other stuff that we've just talked about, there's so much more fun characters you get with the background that you're provided, with the richness that you're provided. Oh, I can see one now saying, you can ride in the vehicle. I'm riding on my on my pony. Right. On oh, my yak. No, 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 a step po- step pony. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. They're long distance travel uh, animals, and his point is, and his point does not react badly to the fringe paths because he won't let it. Right. You know, he controls his animal. But but yeah, there's a whole lot of opportunity, a whole lot of uh, potential conflict that would be interesting. You know, not not terminal. To the party, but a whole lot of um, interesting conflict you could uh, you could bring to the campaign. But John, you have a good point, which is is that if you were playing a golden hoarder and he was a warrior, there's no question that he would bring horses with him. Oh yeah, yeah, he'd definitely be on his horse, and his horse would be well trained. It wouldn't be skittish, and he'd have to deal with all the problems we we talked about when we talked about bringing pets on the on the fringe paths. Oh, yeah, and horses especially, because we spent a lot of time talking about that. Right, but since yeah. he is a master horseman, he also knows how to take care of them. So yeah. he would be in a, in a good position to try to use that horse effectively on other worlds. And he may very well prove that a horse is more valuable than uh, an internal combustion engine vehicle. Yeah, though I can also see him later on, when his horse got you know too old and so forth, instead of getting a new horse, it gets a diesel Harley or something like that. You know, still two wheels. He's not going to go in a vehicle. He's, he wants something he can get his hands out and do things with. Even if he has to learn how to steer with his knees. Now, if he get it late enough, he can get himself a robot horse that solves all those problems and is better than the horse he had originally. Talk about like a like an like a real iron horse. <laughs> yeah. Hey, talk to the uh, Victorians. They'll build him a steam one. <laughs> oh wow! Yes. <laughs> blazing blasts of hot steam coming out of his nostrils. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, guys, for another interesting analysis of the Golden Hoarders. I think we've we've basically done as much damage as we can to this race and hopefully made them something more than the stereotype they seem to be on the page, something that our players are going to want to play and have some real fun with especially in the combinations with the other races that are available and Fringeworthy that we've just mentioned. Thank you, Amber, as you are one of our new hosts, for your insights. And we're hoping that we're going to have a lot more fun with this sort of thing in the future. And we're going to do what we folks have been hoping we, we would do or dreading we would do. So, fellows and ladies, one, two, three. Come! Come!
<laughs> See you next week. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.